everybody. Welcome to Tangentially Speaking. I'm Chris coming at you from Portland, Oregon. And I'm just back from a week in Los Angeles where it was sunny and warm and wonderful. When we got to Portland, everybody said the key, the secret to making it through a winter up here in the gray, dark north is to spend a week in February someplace sunny. So Cassie and I went down to LA and hung out with my family and uh, saw some friends and recorded some podcasts. Uh, I was on with Rogan yesterday, which was a lot of fun. In fact, I'm going to be seeing uh, Joe tonight. He's in Portland playing this weekend, so that'll be cool. I recorded uh, my own podcast with uh, uh, two guys who have been on before, three, three guys actually who have been on the show before, uh, renegade historian Thad Russell, fantastic as always, very smart guy, coming at things from his own unique angle. Uh, I also was able to sit down with my my buddy Chris James, uh, who you may remember from an earlier episode. If you missed that, make sure you go listen to that one in the archives. I've, I've made all the archives free, by the way. Um, they were behind a paywall for a while, but that just seemed... Chinsey. So all the archives are opened up. Uh, go find Chris James, J-A-Y-M-E-S. The dude has stories that are just fucking incredible. <clears throat> and as you know, I I value stories, right? That's like the one currency I, I feel actually has some value is experiences and unique stories. And this guy's got them. Holy cow. Uh, in the first episode, he talked about a bizarre situation involving his mother, which uh, I won't say anything else about to not ruin the surprise for you, but that was very, very touching and interesting. And he also talked about um, having a daughter, which he kind of didn't know about in a way, and strange relationship with his daughter and her, I think, Ecuadorian mother. And uh, he talked about being in Thailand when the tsunami hit and deciding not to um, cancel his trip and go somewhere else or flee or whatever, uh, but to stay and help pull bodies from the rubble. That's in one episode, okay? He told all those stories. So in this episode, uh, we talk about what he's up to now, which involves some incredible stuff with marine mammals, particularly dolphins. Uh, in a clinical situation um, being used to help people. Anyway, and then uh, I did a, a second podcast with Tao Ruspoli, Prince Tao Ruspoli, um, who is such an interesting cat, a filmmaker, uh, a musician, a photographer, an intellectual, a chess aficionado, um, sort of a sort of a very sane person who has been in the heart of fame and fortune. I mean, he is literally 
an Italian prince. His father hung out with Fellini and Salvador Dali. In fact, in our conversation uh, the other day, he told me that he decided to play flamenco guitar because when he was, I think, 13 years old, the Rolling Stones came to town. Uh, must have been Rome. And his dad, uh, the uh, Prince Ruspoli uh, Sr., uh, is was friends with uh, Keith Richards. So he he went to visit Keith and he took his son along, little Tao, and uh, in the course of the conversation with Keith Richards, Tao's father uh, said, oh, by the way, Keith, my son uh, started taking guitar lessons. And Keith picked up a flamenco guitar that was in the hotel room and he played a few flamenco riffs. And he said to Tao, if you want to play guitar, you need to play flamenco guitar because if you play flamenco, you can play anything. Now, that was not my, my best Keith Richards imitation, but uh, you get the idea. Anyway, that is why Tao plays flamenco guitar today and why he's made uh, several beautiful films about flamenco uh, music and culture of the, uh, of the Spanish gitanos who generally are the people who play that music. Anyway, we'll get to that in March. That's coming out March 9th as part of a promotional campaign for uh, Tao's film Monogamish, which features yours truly, Dan Savage, and my parents, if you can wrap your head around that. Anyway, that's what we did in Los Angeles. Now we're back. I'm putting this thing together, and then I'm going to go see Rogan. Uh, this week's guest is one of my favorites, also a repeat, um, part two. This is Richard Satnick, the restaurateur, investor, all-around really smart guy who uh, has uh, an uncanny way of anticipating where the culture is going and getting there a little ahead of it and um, making a shit ton of money in the process. He had the first mountain biking shop in the country, I think he said in the first podcast in uh, Indiana, Bloomington, Indiana, I think. Um, and uh, then he was in Atlanta for a while. And then he had this idea of opening restaurants where you could source all the food within 100 miles of the restaurant. And he looked all over the country to try to find where the best city for that would be. And he found Portland was one of the only cities in the country where you could actually grow all your ingredients, including meats and plants and everything, within 100 miles of the city. So he moved here and he set about uh, opening up a chain of restaurants called uh, Laughing Planet, which anyone who lives in Portland knows. There are probably 15 of them all over the city. And uh, I think there's some in Seattle and around the Northwest. Anyway, he sold that. And in this in this episode, we sort of pick it up from where he sold that chain and uh, why he sold it and some of the the interesting philosophical changes that took place in his life around that. So that's it. Uh, I'm not going to rant. I'm just going to get right to it. I'm not even going to do another one of my mashups. I started working on one a couple hours ago, but I sort of got bag bogged down in it. Uh, I was putting together some songs that I liked in high school, which um, doesn't mean they're all great songs. It just means they're songs that sort of, uh, you know, uh, 
had an impact on me in high school, but that was the late seventies. So there's a lot of like long hair, uh, high voiced men and, uh, tight pants and screaming electric guitars. And, um, yeah, after an hour doing that, I got tired of listening to it. So it's not finished. So I'm going to play you out with, uh, the, the, uh, mashup that Cormac Symington, the great Cormac Symington or Symington put together and sent to me a couple of weeks ago. I really like it. it it's weird hearing my own voice in there, but I like I like uh, the way he uses Duncan's voice and, and some of the songs and stuff. So I'm going to play you out with that. Hope you enjoy this conversation with the great Richard Satnick. Uh, he's a curmudgeonly charming genius of a guy. One thing about Richard, I don't know if we talk about it, but it's very cool. He loves Barcelona. In, in fact, uh, it's his favorite city in the world. He goes there several times a year. And there's this thing in Catalan culture called the Cagané, which is uh, when, when the Catalans do a nativity scene, you've got little baby Jesus in the manger and the three wise men and Mary and Joseph, you know, the whole the standard characters – but they add a different one, another one behind the manger, sort of, you know, not paying attention to the miracles of, you know, baby Jesus and everything going on over there. There's a guy squatting behind the manger, normally reading the paper, taking a shit. And this is in every traditional Catalan nativity scene. It's called the Cagané. And uh, it sort of represents the way normal life goes on, even in the midst of miracles. It's a very, it's a very cool concept. I, I like it a lot. And the Catalans have an interesting relationship with shit. They, they, uh, they have <laughs> these rituals around shit and expressions with shit and lots of. Um, Lots of shit uh, in their language, and and uh, I mean, for example, I may have said this before on the podcast, but uh, the Catalan um, and, and also Spanish, but particularly Catalan swearing, is about shit. Whereas in America, it's about fuck, right? Like fuck, fuck this, fuck you, fuck your mother, fuck your. In in Spain, it's shit. It's like if you really want to get nasty, you like I shit, I shit on in the milk of your mother. Or I shit in the milk of the virgin. Or I shit on the altar of the church. Or I shit in the wine on the altar of the church. These are like serious um, swear expressions. And my favorite is uh, cago en el mar salado. I shit in the salty sea. I mean, and people actually say that. Like you hit your thumb with a hammer and, and you say, I shit in the salty sea. Ah. So... <laughs> I don't know how they take themselves seriously when they do it, but they do. All right, here's the mashup from Cormac Symington, and then it's Richard Satnick. Hope you enjoy it. Hope you're having a great time. I've been getting really great emails. I'm not going to go into it, but thank you. All of you have been sending emails, making donations on the, the Chris Ryan PhD page, buying T-shirts, mom's churning them out, sending them to you everywhere. Uh, so it's it's really cool to, to have everybody... Uh, chiming in together like this to me sax is like music right it can be a you know bach in a cathedral and it's fucking you know mind-blowing and it's the closest thing to the ethereal heaven that will ever have ever happen. or it can be the rolling stones in philadelphia in a coliseum 
I've been driving cab in Philadelphia 15 years. When the Stones come in, they just turn everybody on. People need turning on. The music just turns me on. She is so Sorry. super sexy. Dionne Fort? Yeah, Dionne yeah, Fort. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're wild. What's the, the big hit? Baby on fire. Baby on, on fire. If you were in, in, in hell and you were laying in mud and a giant demon came loping by, Bieber would be its puckered demonic asshole spraying out supernatural diarrhea into the world. Where were, what were we talking about before? Or does it matter? Oh, you mean podcast-wise? Yeah. Um, Where we, did we leave off? We basically, we were talking about your background, the business background, the bicycle shop, and uh, sort of got into coming to Portland and starting the restaurant and the, the uh, farm-to-table thing that you got interested in. But then we never transitioned. Like, we never talked about your heart surgery and how that you know, uh, opened you up to rethinking your approach to food um, and, right. you know, Dick's Kitchen and the whole idea of Dick's Kitchen and all that. So, right. Well, the the interesting thing about The Laughing Planet is that it, it's, it covers one aspect of the farm-to-table movement, but as I learned through my heart surgery, um, there are some more interesting and newer approaches to nutrition that suggest... Um, an even more interesting farm-to-table connection. So it, it's kind of... I started out wanting to do it only to have to learn it all over again after my heart surgery uh, when it was suggested that I eat a little more paleo, if you will. Um, Who suggested that? Was it your your cardiologist? Um, no, stuff I was reading. is uh, anti-inflammatory diet. One of, the, one of the things that was clear even before my surgery was that I had rampant inflammatory problems, whether that was with arthritis, um, having had two discectomies and uh, a, a hip replacement surgery, and having numerous injuries um, from my rugby career that were bothering me enormously and arthritically. Knowing that that, plus a tendency toward heart disease that runs in my family, um, and other inflammatory issues from simple things like gum disease, um, things like that, you just sort of look at it and say, well, I better start eating in more in an anti-inflammatory way because there are some foods that promote it and some foods that don't. When I read that the, the inflammatory diet suggests eating a lot more omega-3s and that those omega-3s are sourced either from fish or from 100% grass-fed or really naturally raised animals, that opened the door toward understanding, well, why would that be? Why would, what would make it so different? And in heading in that direction, there are just a whole series of doors opened up that we walked through, or I walked through, um, partly uh, 
for personal reasons and then for reasons of an interest in the business implications. Right. Um, had you already sold Laughing uh, Laughing? No, Planet? no, not until after my surgery. And, yeah. and the surgery was tough on several levels. Not only is it a, is it a game changer um, in an obvious way, but it has a residual uh, depression effect that you just, you spend a whole year or two thinking, you know, you're, you're, you're just not physically strong enough to feel normal. So you begin to think you're really at the, you're at the end of your rope and you should just clean up your messes as best you can because you don't have very long to go. Well, in the old days that was true, but it's probably not as true now, especially, we hope, with the changes in my diet, um, helping my body do its best with the fucked up condition I've left it in for because of years of you know, of un, medically unsupervised rugby career, mm. as well as, uh, you know, eating the classic, at the time, the classic vegetarian diet for a long time, eating low on the food chain, but eating lots of pasta and lots of lots of sugar and, and uh, donuts and sugared cereals and things like that. So, How did you become a vegetarian? Uh, that was what I understood to be the healthy thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad actually had a small restaurant in New York City called the Great American Health Bar. That was a vegetarian restaurant, but that was in a heavily Jewish neighborhood, so it was also kosher and oh, right. a very cool way for him to cash in on kind of the earliest, very earliest vegetarian uh, movement. And from partly from that and from what I was reading... Uh, in the 80s, it seemed to make the most sense to be vegetarian. That seems, and it's still, for a lot of people, it's still considered the healthy way to go, even though research doesn't really bear it out. Mm. Um, there was also the issue of understanding the ethical dilemmas of supporting industrial animal husbandry, right. which, you know, what, how, however you look at the way most animals are raised for meat production in this country, it's it's abysmal and something you shouldn't support. So for ethical reasons and for health reasons, I decided to be a vegetarian, you know, off and on. I wasn't the strictest guy in the world. I would eat fish in particular, mm. being a East Coaster and having grown up real close to the ocean. Um, I'm used to eating fish and shellfish and clams. And yeah. I actually never considered clams and mussels to be animals, so I just would eat those even while it's I was It's definitely debatable. Yeah. I mean, you try training a clam, you know. <laughs> yeah, I was a vegetarian for three years, uh, but my uh, exception was pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I, I do not consider pepperoni to be an animal. <laughs> so. Well, I, I understand those kinds of exceptions. But for me, it was, um, it was also perceived... You know, I, I do have a kind of a quasi-diabetic... I've always had a problem with being what's known as pre-diabetic. Um, that would have been the other thing I should have mentioned when I said why you know why worry about eating differently. Well, with inflammation, pre-diabetes, and a family tendency toward heart disease, right. you've got the the trifecta going forward for problems. And yeah. sure enough, um, you know the minute they looked really closely, they found I had a major obstructions in my arteries, and it turns out it's not because of cholesterol, or at least the current thinking is it really isn't cholesterol. It's a whole host of other issues that would have likely caused inflammation in the 
in the arterial mm. walls. So right. the the cholesterol's there, but it's there to heal that inflammation, right. and it's not the cause of the problem. The problem right. is the inflammatory something or other, and uh, it turns out that a lot of the foods we eat and a lot of the ways we live contribute you know massively to that inflammatory load so it, and it isn't just how you eat um, one of the interesting things one of the other doors that opens as you explore the paleo diet is uh, it suggests that you get exercise more like a caveman than just sitting around and, and uh, letting somebody bring you your dinner um, better sleep and stress management and good social connections those are That's all it. really important things and all of them, oddly enough, probably have an impact on our inflammatory load, even if there's some indirect mechanisms, but not getting enough sleep, not, you know, not having good social connections leaves us prone to certain conditions that can also lead to inflammatory situations. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I don't know if we talked about the French paradox last time, um, but I, I find that to be really interesting. You know what I'm talking about? The French paradox? The, eating butter yeah well the french eat so much more fat than americans so uh but they have much lower rates of heart disease and so in cardiology and medicine in general this is called the french paradox like how is that possible that you know they're they're more or less like us genetically right they're northern european white whatever generally and uh and yet they they've got this i think this was the first sort of doubt about the high fat being bad for you model mm-hmm. and what they so the researchers typical american researchers they looked at the white uh, red wine so the first thing was like oh it must be the red wine there's some chemical in red wine resveratrol or something like that and they start extracting it and then they're selling supplements that you could take that are supposedly going to help your heart health and blah 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 and then it was um you know, it's the way the cheeses are made and the, the bacteria maybe in the cheese and all looking for all these uh, silver bullets, you know, mm-hmm. to try to figure out what it is. My theory relates to what you were just talking about. I don't think it's about the food at all. I think it's about the way people eat in France. Nobody's in a hurry. Nobody's eating at their desk at the office, right? You sit down and you sit down for lunch. You sit down with friends. You have some uh, wine at, at lunch and it's not necessarily the chemically the wine is interacting in some level that's promoting health I think it's just that you're relaxed you're having a good time yeah, there's undoubtedly a great that's really part of it I yeah mean, without a the, question I mean yeah. stress is underlies basically every major disease we're facing these days right Absolutely. You, you look at it stress is triggering all these different diseases but the the what we're eating and the the combination of all the things that uh, Amer- the standard American diet has in it um, allows stress to work, uh, you know, on an even bigger mm. palate because we're we're just putting things in our bodies that our bodies doesn't know, don't know what to do with. Yeah. Um, yeah, the French have less of that. They they tolerate yeah. much fewer intrusions in food, uh, and if it's an artisan product. Um, it's already been tested by generations. So, yeah. you know, we just don't know what it's like to have so much processed soy in your food for so long or all these other processed foods that that we eat, um, canola oil. You know, we just don't know what, we don't think those are really good for us, but we have no idea about long-term effects either. Right. Well, we know they're good for the corporate bottom line for the right. companies that make that shit. Right. Do you, did you ever... Did you? How can I say this? Because I mean, you, your father obviously was a skeptic about uh, some of the the bullshit that that people 
were spouting about diet um, by the nature of the restaurant. Well, you to be to be obvious, to be honest, he was um, actually it was more of a business decision. He saw oh, okay. he he bought this franchise from somebody who he saw. This was a smart move because people were moving in, in that direction, uh, okay. and you know, very, he wasn't a true believer or anything. No, he continued to eat meat the whole time, and and, um, <laughs> and, and so did I. Yeah. But a lot of what was involved in that eventually seeped in, and my you know my diet did change. It wasn't right. really because of his restaurant. It just that was one of those things that that introduces you to the idea of eating in a more vegetarian way. Yeah. Um, but really, it was so that he could get away with being kosher, so he didn't have any meat in the premises. And oh, right. In in Midtown Manhattan, in the Diamond District, there was enough people eating just kosher that you could pack the place at lunch, and he could go home at night. Is that where his restaurant was? Yeah, We're on Forty Seventh. Uh, right around there. I forget the actual. It might have been Forty Ninth. Uh-huh. Um, but right in that area, and so it was a very heavy Jewish clientele. Did we talk about my time in the Diamond District? No. What did you do there? I, I actually lived and worked in the Diamond District for two years, selling diamonds. It, no, uh, managing real estate. It was the. Wow. It was a very weird. I, I mentioned to you the other day uh, we were having lunch. Mm-hmm. I mentioned a guy told me I'd have a net worth of a million. That's blah, that blah, blah. guy. That was that guy. Yeah, oh. he had inherited uh, two build, three buildings. Well, two and a half buildings on Forty Seventh between Fifth and Sixth. That had been in his family for three generations. Wow. And, uh, yeah, so, I mean, I told you the story the other day. I, I don't know if I've told it on the podcast, but I'll save it for some other time. But, uh, yeah, that's where I was working. And then I was living up in um, Spanish Harlem, 106 and Lex. This is in 85. Wow. Right? So that that's was pretty interesting. the jungle. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I was the only white guy anywhere up there. And it was a ground floor apartment, 10 feet wide by 40 feet long, with two <laughs> windows at one end, face on the street. And the whole wall was a playground. So they'd be out there bouncing basketballs and up throwing bottles up against my wall. And I'm the only, I'm the only white dude. Live there? Uh, I lived there probably about five months. Jeez. And, uh, and what happened was that the guy I worked for, his name was Joe. He used to, when we worked late, he, he lived in New Rochelle. Uh-huh. And so he'd give me a ride in his stretch Mercedes uh, limo with the driver and the tinted from glass. To- from the Diamond District up to my, he dropped me off at 106 and Lex, That's- and then he'd continue uptown and go, you know, go to New Rochelle. So the dudes, like, standing around the barrel fire would see me getting out of this stretch, stretch limo. And give you proper respect, right? They just... Gave me, you know, they did. They didn't mess with me. Exactly, they knew you were connected. <laughs> I guess so. It's the only thing that saved me, man. That's I, funny. That and the fact that I never like went out and asked them to stop bouncing their basketball on my wall. You know that. <laughs> That's a good thing. That yeah, was strategically smart. Probably place. don't want to, but. That's anyway, funny. Yeah, yeah, that was crazy. You know, I'm I'm sitting here looking at your bookshelf, and I know you said this is these are books that you haven't yet taken to your place. We're we're in Richard's sort of. Uh, spare office or something here and I see all these great books it's amazing you've read so much in anthropology sexuality 
primatology. You know, they're just all jumping out at me here. It's amazing. Well, you know, you got to stay, got to stay active. Yeah, but you're running five businesses and and you're reading all these books. How do you do that? In the absence of the sacred by Jerry Mander, I read that thirty years ago. Well, so did I about four arguments for the elimination of television with some other book he wrote. Yeah, but you know, part of it is I don't watch television. No, and I don't at this point. I I mean, reading is the one relaxing thing I do. So yeah, continually looking for something. and you know it, it has to be part of what is intellectually stimulating to me, so that explains some of the topics. Right. But I do, you know, the, I'm sure I've read barely a quarter of what's up there mm. because I read into a book and then get kind of annoyed when somebody can't express themselves very well, especially if they have something important to say. Mm. Um, which is one reason why I, you know, I love your book because you have something important to say and you say it so hilariously oh, well thanks. so i mean it's <laughs> it's actually a joy to read a book like that and it's a task to read books that i that have important shit to say right but they can't they can't string a sentence together and they can't string a logical argument together and you know there's no yeah. no sense of narrative flow or whatever i, I don't know I'm, i've been so long since i was in critical uh, analysis of reading but it's Partly why I have so many books is I keep trying, I keep hoping somebody's got something important and it's got part of the answer. Right. Which is why, how have we gone so completely off off course as a species, but particularly as the species, you know, Bubis Americanus. This is the, the one that I have the hardest time with because I'm surrounded by it and at some level I am one. So. And we're leading the way. That's that's that's. Well, we the thing. were up till recently. We were. Well, it depends which direction you think we're going. I mean, I feel like we led the way up, and now we're leading the way down. Well, yes, you know? okay, uh, fair enough. But you know, one suspects that if you really want innovative culture, you probably should go to Berlin. Yeah. Um, if you want yeah. interesting, if you're an optimist, if you think the world's going to get better, you well, want to be in there. Europe. Even there, they know better. Come on, <laughs> they've been through it. They've been through a Holocaust. Yeah. And I think it, unless they're so young and uneducated that they don't understand the burden of that history on looking forward as a civilization, then shame on them. But most Berliners and Germans that I've met are fairly thoughtful, well-educated people. And and I think, well, I think that there are definitely different reasons for that. But I, I feel like the presence of history in Europe uh, contributes to the sense of of what you're what you're describing this sort of um, this uh, immediate feeling of how bad things can get. You know, it's America. It's everything's so far away. Yeah, you and know, we're so distracted. Right, we and there and there's this innocence, right, right, this right. Disney-fied bullshit ignorance slash innocence that is such a luxury that America's in, you know somehow enabled themselves to, this endless childhood of the beach boys and you know <laughs> California girls uh, that's true and, uh, and you know we it, you're right about it being almost a serendipitous moment in geological history that mm. you know this continent was here for us to rape and pillage and, yeah. and not pay very much of the price except occasionally the dust bowl was won the depression things like that but you know, for for an awful lot of people, this has been the land of milk and honey, without any real need to think about true sustainability. Without looking at saying, right. well, if we're going to be a great civilization, then the measure should be 
how long can we maintain the ascendance part of the curve versus how quickly are we dropping off the face of the back end of the curve, which seems to be happening at such a pace now, it's almost dizzying. Well, it is, actually. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it would be funny if anybody was around to make... Well, you're around, so it is funny. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there aren't very many people with whom you can have a nuanced intellectual conversation and recognize how ridiculous our, our lives are. Yeah. Um, and still, you know, go ahead and get up the next morning and go, well, let's see what today brings, you know, for ridiculousness. Yeah, yeah, I think you, you sort of have to uh, cultivate a Buddhist detachment from the whole thing, right? If you can, yes. If, yeah. you're, if you're lucky enough to be able to uh, unrationalize yourself, yes. Well, I think, what, you're Jewish, right? Uh, part. Part I'm, Jewish. Uh, my fam- my gra- maternal grandmother is not, and therefore I would be cast out by the oh, serious yeah. heaves. Oh, yeah don't consider me Jewish. This has right. been the dilemma of my life. Oh, really? They would never accept me, nor did I want to be, especially when I saw the black hats and fur coats in the middle of the summer. I thought, there you oh, go. that's nuts. The night Riders. Right. And so I didn't really want to be part of that either. Um, and um, and yet, of course, if I were in Berlin in the 30s, I'd have been rounded up with the rest of them. Yeah. That doesn't Jewish seem enough. fair. No. Yeah. Well, yeah. three-quarters Jewish and, you know, a lot more guilt and a lot more, well, Irish Catholic fits into that. Is that well. I was going to ask, what's the other? Is it Irish, Irish Catholic? Irish Catholic, yeah. yeah. what I was going to say is that I think one of the things that the sort of Jewish culture and the Irish Catholic culture that my family comes from shares is um, a sort of a gut-level Understanding that the only dignified response to life is laughter. Well, if that's true, then that's a redeeming factor in both cultures. I, I think mean, so. I mean, I mean, they're uh, both fucked up and weird, right? <laughs> but think about it. You got, you know, the, in the end, you can laugh about it. That's all you can do, right? Well, right. Jewish the Irish Canadians, wake. of course. Yeah. And I don't know enough about Irish culture to really be able to speak about it. But Jewish comedians—that's obviously a tradition that's right. deep. I actually thought about this uh, in my professional career. I should have adopted my gr- my grandmother's name, and then I could have been a porn star. Her name was O'Toole. I would have been Dick O'Toole. Oh yeah. And then for sure I would have been a porn star <laughs> instead of <laughs> instead of the star of some place called Dick's Dick's, Dick's Kitchen. Kitchen. Yeah. So you think that's all you need to become a porn star is is a the great, right name? Well, you need the right brand. <laughs> you know that. I you mean, gotta brand yourself. Everything's about branding in in this uh, post post twentieth uh, century America. Yeah. I, did I tell you I introduced my mother to? Um, uh, what's his name? The guy with the huge schlong. Ron Jeremy? Ron Jeremy. Very yeah. nice. You got her a bottle Like of, a month ago. I, did you get her a bottle of Ron Jeremy? Ron, his rum? Ron? Does he have yeah, rum? he has his own bottle know. of rum. Uh, I have a signed copy of a signed bottle in my somewhere. No, it? I was doing this show in, in L.A., this HBO pilot, and my, my mother came to be in the studio audience, and Ron Jeremy was there. And afterwards... I was like, oh, and Ron, someone introduced me to Ron Jeremy, and my mother was there, and she said, well, introduce me to your friend. <laughs> yeah, he's a pretty unassuming Mom. little fucker, isn't he? He's great. He was fine, yeah. yeah. But she had no idea who he was, thank God. He's, but, got a, he's got a club here in town. Well, you know, he's, least, talk about branding, like he's not even a part owner of that club. Oh, he just lends his heard. name to it. Yeah, yeah, I read. Well, he must get paid for that. Probably, yeah, there's yeah, an endorsement deal or something. Yeah, Club Sesso. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. 
I assume you've been there many times. I've been there once uh, <laughs> when I was on my speaking tour. I was invited down. Cassie and I went down actually, and um, unfortunately, the night we went there, it was S and M night. And, and that's not your particular. No, we're, neither one of us is really into that, and so it was kind of like, you know, it's fine. I'm not against it, but it's just not my thing. So it was just kind of like, yeah, I stumbled into somebody else's weirdness. Weirdness, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's the only time I've been there. Ron and Ron Jeremy invited us down again, and, and there's some talk about maybe doing a podcast. But oh, he'd be great to talk to. I should think. Think of some of his experiences. Yeah, I guess if you can frame some questions that. You know, beg to be answered in a way that he's not used to answering. <laughs> well, that's that's the key. Yeah, I mean, someone like that who's done so much media and is so focused on one particular aspect of his life, well, one part of his anatomy. Of his anatomy, yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 that's yeah. Funny. Anyway, so enough about Ron Jeremy's dick. Let's get back to yours. Uh, so <laughs> you've got this new restaurant. So you sort of rethink the whole thing. And and another just uh, tangent here. What I really wanted to say about your book collection is that what I recognize in it is not just a lot of titles, but I recognize that you are groping toward a comprehensive understanding of something. I, these books all interrelate in certain ways. It's not random. You're not just reading a bunch of novels. And, and there are, there's from, no fiction up there. There's not yeah, a single work of fiction. Not a single. Okay, good. I didn't notice any, but I... I yeah, so you're not, it's not entertainment. You're looking for an answer. You're trying to put together some comprehensive sense, understanding of life. Yeah, that's true. I, yeah. It's to understand why we do things and are there better ways? I mean, is someone else figured out a better way to organize things? Um, is there an ultimate value to this other than just scratching an itch? I mean, what the fuck happens? <laughs> I, I feel like we. Well, get, I mean, do I owe the world a book? Is that, that what you're? Yeah, you're I mean, if you're kind of, you're spending all this time researching for what? Is it just your personal satisfaction, or are you? Is there I something want, you want to get? I want to know when to duck. That's all. I want to know when to <laughs> when to head out toward the hills because the the civilizations reached a point where it's every man for himself and God against all. Uh huh. The uh, the Hobbesian nightmare. Well, you know it's one good catastrophe away from mayhem so you know all you need is a good earthquake and people start reverting I just want to be able to know a little bit about what they're going to do and and you know the other thing yeah. is there's always this element of thinking about could we do it smarter if we if we somehow integrate knowledge a different way and put things together could we could we avoid some of the what appears to be the unavoidable um, and you know there's always little pockets of understanding and knowledge that I that I'm drawn to that mm. when you when somebody you know Kunstler for example the the urban writer the writer about urban affairs and urban planning I mean you realize that he has enough sarcastic you know a kind of a wise wise ass understanding of of how people live better than others and so you're looking for answers there why why are certain places in american cities such abysmal places to be at all you know they're just for any length of time and why are some why do they draw people i mean i've been always been fascinated by outdoor seating it integrates into my restaurants um but also you know where places where places that have vibrant outdoor 
cafe scenes are also the most cherished places in the world, and Paris being one, European cities being others, um, wherever, Amsterdam is a beautiful example of it. Um, and so that's an example of looking for answers to what could we do, and one of the reasons I came to Portland is Portland had a little bit of that sense of um, willingness to look at real value of public space, of mm. living in a different value system where money wasn't the only measure of how successful you were or how valuable your contribution was. Whereas in most of this country, that's what you get. I mean, you, you, get, to, you get to be part of a, a monetary system that, granted, you need something like it, but is that the only value system that makes sense? And so I think those are all, all those books are attempts to find alternative answers to that. Do you ever feel like, um, like life is a process of learning how to dance and by the time you figure it out, the party's over? Yeah, you can't dance because you'll fall over from fatigue or <laughs> you'll trip from... Well, yes, but, you know, learning about stuff is... It, when you can't learn and be surprised anymore, that's when the party's over. I mean, mm. as long as you can keep... As long as there's somebody out there that can make you laugh still. And that's tough. I mean, mm. because most of them aren't very good anymore, but there are some. And I think the people who are going to do a good job of moving forward... And I'm I'm nervous about the next generation because they're going to have their hands full and I don't know that we've done a very good job of prepping them for the challenges ahead now one reason I didn't have putting kids, it charitably there. yeah yeah and I one reason I didn't have kids was because of the mess I knew that they'd be mm. they'd be handed um, there are lots of reasons psychologically and and personally but one of them is to realize wow this is this is going to be a tough world to make it and um, but once in a while you, you see some kids that you know you ask yourselves oh these guys have a good shot I like Liam's kids yeah, I mean Liam's two kids, kids are yeah. are hilarious first of all they obviously have to have a good sense of humor because otherwise they'd move out <laughs> if they were smart um, but you know they yeah. they what what you got to love about them is Liam's cultivated a certain independent way of looking at things, so they get to figure it out themselves. Yeah. He hasn't he hasn't sugarcoated it. Yeah. Uh, in fact, if anything, he does the opposite. And you know they still have a sense of humor about it, so they're doing good. I met two other kids today out at my farm. My uh, um, a friend of mine, Lisa, who's a professor of biology at PSU, brought out her two kids. And just incredible girls, really. And, you know, you, you realize that if there are more of these guys around, they have a chance. But they got to be working on this stuff. How much of our culture, how much of our national energy, which is prodigious, how much of it is really being focused on the problems at hand? None of it. Very little. Yeah. I mean, you, yeah. regardless of how you measure the funding for studying climate change or studying alternative agriculture, yeah. regardless... Compared to where the real energy and the real money and effort goes, we're just we're we're pissing in the wind, and, and we're gonna be surprised when it comes back to get us. Yeah, Which no, is, it's true. I, I read a book recently. I forget what it's called. Elegant Splendor. It's got some. It's got a title that is impossible for me to remember, which is a bad sign in a book. But it's a very good book. Um, and w he traces the rise and fall of various civilizations, the ancient Sumerians, 
you know, the Greeks, the Romans, the Inca, and... Uh, Aztecs. Aztec, well, Mayan. Okay. Um, and then maybe Aztecs, I don't remember, but the, there was one in Asia as well, Southeast Asia, The I think the... The Angor, you know, Angkor Wat and that. Okay. Um, but he, he just, it's it's a brilliant book. It's quite short, but he just goes through each of these civilizations and shows how they, oh, um, uh, uh, Easter Island okay. is the other one, right? Sure. And he goes through and shows how they, they just follow the same patterns mm-hmm. over and over and over and over again. Of course, Jared Diamond wrote Collapse, which sort of does some of the same stuff. Um, but it, it's, it's just amazing. And... And he shows the psychology of how one leads to the next in a way that's just really hard to break out of, mm-hmm. you know. And we, every one of those civilizations said, "No, not us. We, you know, we we're know different. we're different, right. right?" It's just like I love how, like, when you look into anthropology, you've probably come across this words like, you know, uh, Apache and Navajo and Hopi and uh, you know all these. Seneca, all these different names of tribes mean in the native language the people. Right. (laughs) Everybody's unique. We're all the chosen ones. Well, and you know, if you take the concept of evolution seriously, then we're not the end product that we that all our we culturally want to believe we are. Yeah. Um, And the question is, are we smart enough to handle the 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 outcome of our behavior, and I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the evidence is pretty overwhelming. Right. I think it's pretty obvious that we're we're smart enough to figure out how to fuck shit up, but not how to live in a sustainable, scaled, correctly, yeah. species-specific way. I mean, well, we're, we're a species, yeah. but we sure don't think so. Well, and that gets us back to what you were saying about Berlin and Northern Europe and the different in the difference in the cultural approach there. You know, it's... It seems to me that the problem in America is not only are we not investing the money and we're not figuring it out, culturally, we're not even aware that that's the issue. Right. We're so distracted with the bullshit that, you know, is fed to us, both actual food and uh, and media. You know, it's, uh-huh. I mean, uh-huh. you, you've been outside of the country. When you come back to America, if you've been outside for a long time, and people live here can't imagine this, but... If you have been outside of the country for a long time and you come back, it seems like a land of monsters. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You see people walking around that there is nobody in Thailand that's 350 pounds. I mean, Mm -hmm. there there may be five people in the entire country who have some, you know, genetic disorder. But the sort of normal American body shape is not a human body shape. (laughs) It's very strange to see. Well, and it's, you know, it's part of how you self-destruct as a culture. Is you yeah. eat yourselves into into enormous disease patterns. And, and you know, mm-hmm. these are things that even without being a monster, you know, I was susceptible to because of the, the crap that you get fed. Because our culture, you know, basically privileges making money over everything else. That's it. And that's it. You know, so if you can make money at it, then it doesn't matter how, whether the science is actually supportive of your assertions or not. You can right. get around all that. Right. But yeah, it's 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 pretty disconcerting because we we know how to live sustainably. We figured that out. Some, but we're not willing to do it. 
on a grand cultural scale. And that requires a paradigm shift in thinking that usually requires a catastrophe uh, or a holocaust of some sort, which is why perhaps in Europe they've figured it out and they're living on a much more sustainable scale um, and, you know, less grandiose um, thinking about whatever it is that you know empire builders think about so yeah (laughs) yeah have you heard of a book called a paradise built in hell or uh, rebecca i have heard of it but i haven't actually read it it It, sounds delightful what is it it's very interesting because it relates to something you said earlier um when you said we're like we're one earthquake away from chaos and all that um what was very interesting about that book is she goes and looks at scenes of earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, war, uh, tsunami, various sorts of disaster where the sort of normalcy breaks down and, you know, there's the the communications wiped out and all this. And, you know, this is what we're, this is, we're told this is when human nature comes out. This is where shit gets nasty. Well, except that actually people rise above that. That's what she found. She found in every case that that's when people start helping one another. That's when people are happy. Yeah, it's that's actually where there's meaning. They, they in think life. about life in a very different way because they 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 have to give up that notion that you make everything about money. Right. This exactly. Is much more about community. Right. And, and reconstructing. And that's what makes them happy and gives right. meaning to life. And so here we are, constantly trying to protect ourselves from the very thing that makes life meaningful. Right. Which is. The unexpected. You know, in Spanish, the word aislar means to isolate and to insulate. Hmm. So, so we're insulating ourselves, you know, all the time from temperature changes, from rain, from thunderstorms, from dangerous people, from strange people, from, weird, from you know, unknown people. And then we're, like, bummed out because life is meaningless and, and, you know, I'm depressed. And re- right, and requires enormous electronic... Uh, stimulation before we can have anything remotely resembling living. Yeah. No, that's true. Yeah. It, it, it is ridiculous. And the irony is that if we were to embrace the catastrophes that are coming, you know, they could be really tonic to figuring out a better way. But how does a culture, this is, I guess, the answer I'm looking for. How does a culture change its mind? How mm. does it, how does it become, how does it develop new values without the catastrophe or the collapse of the civilization being required? Can a civilization avoid utter collapse and perhaps manage the decline properly? That's, I think, the best you can hope for, is that at some point... It's the reason I moved to Oregon, because if you look at the food shed around Oregon, you realize that come hell or high water, you can feed yourself around here. Hmm. We're doing it out at my farm. And you know, just learning how that works... It's part of why I came here. Um, So there'll be places that can cushion the decline, but does that mean the rest of American civilization, if it doesn't change, is going to suddenly, you know, emerge back in the lead of of great civilizations? No, I don't think it ever was there. I mean, Americans are so uh, mistaken about our own history, much less, you know, what that history represents. You know, we stole this yeah. continent. We we think we won World War Two. All this kind of stuff is just insanely wrong. And um, it's like what they used to say about George Bush. He was born on third base and thought he hit a triple. No, absolutely. That's yeah, American. That's our, our American history. culture. And yeah. 
you know, without that Holocaust of some sort or another, and, you know, I keep wondering if it isn't going to be earthquakes since we're in an earthquake zone that's well overdue for something big to happen. And I don't know if you've noticed in the news, there seem to be little ones cropping up up and down the Pacific Mm. earthquake zone. So there was another one yesterday in Napa. Another one in Napa. Yeah, not as big as the first one. On the same fault line? Same area. so. So. you know, one, I just make sure you have earthquake insurance wherever you go because it's going to happen. I'm a renter with, with no property, so I don't give a shit. As long as my laptop doesn't get crushed. Well, then just make sure you have a stash of food because once yeah. once the Willamette River is uncrossable, because the first earthquake is going to knock all the bridges down, uh, then what? Uh, you know, then you're going to have to be ferrying food back and forth and all the supplies. So it'll be mm-hmm. an interesting time. No, I've got a buddy who owns a restaurant, so I'm all right. <laughs> <laughs> you better have a buddy who owns a farm because those are the guys that are going to be eating. Yeah, I'll know one thing: we'll have chickens. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, the, what I worry about is you know when that happens. Even if you're set up, you've got a farm, you've got animals, you got then you're going to have like marauding lunatics. Well, that's coming. what that's what Kunstler said. I mean, at yeah. one point I was talking to him about wh- what do you do about your obvious. He's obviously correct that human uh, American civilization is doomed, and you know we live in in a ridiculous society. So I said, well, I'm going to move out to the Northwest and find me a place near Portland, which still looks salvageable. And he said, yes, it is. He goes, but then you're going to have to worry about Chinese pirates at some point. <laughs> <laughs> and and I thought, you know, he's probably right. <laughs> yeah. So we're we're going to get our gun permits, and we're going to look keep an eye out looking for Chinese pirates but yeah. you're right I mean at some point when civilization gets that fucked up then it's every man for himself and, and God against all but um, at at some point I don't think that's going to happen in my lifetime uh, yeah. in, in our lifetime soon but there will be unexpected problems going forward I mean we already know that our health as a nation is going way in the wrong direction on every number of levels so you know how do you how do you call that a a collapsing a, a evidence of collapsing civilization? Well, I mean it is, but it's it's quite a, a leap from saying why somebody develops heart disease and how civilizations go through this this sort of process. But in in effect, it's the same process that we're all eating food that makes us sick. And that's what our civilization produces. It makes us stupid too, so we can't actually begin. Well, we can begin, but we can't sustain the kind of paradigm shift we need. Mm. I mean, the, the, the major cultural evolutionary shift. And it seems like that's what happens, that cultures can't make that change. They just have to collapse and go away. Um, so, you know, then we get to ask what, you know, what flotsam and jetsam are we leaving behind for future generations to find? What, what do you want them to find? I want them to find my collection of Mao sculptures. I have... I was a big fan of Mao Zedong. <laughs> so as you can see, the artwork behind you is all Chinese revolutionary art, which you can't get now. I mean, it's all illegal to find any of this shit. So, And what was it about Mao that attracted you? Uh, he was the uh, marketing aspect. <laughs> Great marketing. Yeah, yeah, the um, Mao brand. Right, and, you know, kind of an early... You know, you knew that wasn't going to last for very long either, but but it's interesting to watch how they've segued from a completely ridiculous society now to our version of a ridiculous society. And 
Um, I wish I knew more Chinese. I mean, back in the day, you know, we were told to study Spanish, but I mm. wish we'd, we'd studied Chinese because if you want to watch an, an interesting civilization rise and fall extremely quickly, they're probably the paradigm case there. Um, yeah. they're, they're copying all the worst aspects of our culture. Man, and talk about, uh, you know, contamination. Holy shit. Have you been to China? No. I haven't either. I, that's one place I really have no interest in going. I know it's interesting intellectually, but there's nothing that attracts me to it. Well, it's probably an unhealthy thing to do as well. I mean, yeah, the air, the food, the attitudes, the, the you know, hawking and spitting every morning. And it's just <laughs> fucking gross, man. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's not. It's not I read somewhere recently uh, they're selling um, pig anuses as calamari. So you have to be careful if you get your calamari from a Chinese <laughs> oh supplier. Oh my god! Yeah. How can you how how can you do such a thing to such a wonderful food? Calamari is great, great food. Something we'd better get used to eating because there's plenty of squid. Yeah. They're taking over since we're wiping everything else. What out. about jellyfish? Is there a way to eat jellyfish? I'm sure there is, but yeah. you got to do something. Because there are a lot of them. Yeah, but right, the. Yeah. The Humboldt squid, in particular, are ravaging the West Coast. They're oh, just really? taking over everything and yeah. giant schools. And they're actually they've even attacked humans. Really? Yeah, they're pretty good size. They're about uh, what is that? About two and a half feet long and and pretty aggressive. But they make good eating. So yeah, that's. Well, that's, that's I mean, that's what it's going to come down that's to. That's an adaptive thing, you right. know, like eating these invasive species. There's some, some carp or something now that's going up into the Great Lakes. They're all worried about that it went up the Mississippi River, and now they're like, yeah, there's yeah. like one barrier before it gets in the Great Lakes, and it kills everything, you know. Like, yeah, we, culture is, is very nimble, but it's not responding to um, intentional guidance it's responding to i think corporate power essentially and you know often against our interests as organisms well but if we could guide it if we could you know if we could make that carp a highly valued food source which why the hell not i mean well it all depends on what else happens along with that because you're talking about destroying an ecosystem and that's whether you, there's lots of carp left but no ecosystem, then that's not a healthy, sustainable system. No, I'm saying eat that shit because it's the enemy. You know, and it's by fucking all up means, the figure ecosystem. out how to eat it. Yeah, but how do you figure out how to eat? look? Look what's happening up in Washington now. All the oysters are dying out. Oh, really? Yeah. So how do you figure that one out? I Why mean, is it because the water temperature Some, changing? Something in the water's changing, and the mm. oysters are. I don't. I'm not a marine biologist. I just read that. If you're in the oyster business, you're going to want to find another source than Washington. Really? And the whole the whole northwest coast is, it's probably something in the water. Um, but as well, climate change. Yeah. And when you stress a, a species enough from a couple of angles, then they don't adapt so well. Yeah, yeah. Well, the uh, butterflies, I don't know if you read about the monarch butterflies, are down like 70% in the oh, last 15 years. That's a bad sign. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're surrounded by bad signs. It's it's incredible. I personally, I think, you know, getting back to your uh, your your Holocaust, and I, and I know you're using that word not in the German Jewish sense, but in the sense of just massive death and destruction. That it seems to me that the only chance we've got as a species to to do something decent on this planet is to reduce our 
global population to a few million, 10, 15 million people and go from there. Oh, absolutely. That's the, without a doubt, the, the driving issue is overpopulation. Yeah. Um, with climate change now having been both an outcome of overpopulation and a separate independent factor that's going to make life really complicated. But we're way past sustainable population yeah. levels. And also, we've painted ourselves into this corner technologically. I mean, one thing we never talk about is uh, Fukushima. It's still and that shit's still going on. Right, yeah, right. yeah. They're still venting all that water into the ocean, and everybody's just agreed not to talk about it. Well, and that's ultimately that's the the technological thing our society has to figure out is how to develop how to develop alternative energy sources that really do work. So yeah, we couldn't have any of our current civilizational issues if we weren't you know if it wasn't for internal combustion engines and and oil. So. You know, that's the, the. We used to talk a lot more about that, but that's because so much more shit's going wrong and we have plenty <laughs> else to talk about. But yeah. at the bottom, we still haven't figured out a sustainable energy system. And until we do that and reduce our numbers, it's pretty dicey whether the species will survive. And well, of course, all species become extinct. I mean, that's at least what we know from the fossil record. So. Except cockroaches and uh, Keith Richards. Those are the, the two exceptions, I believe. Is yeah. he still around? He is. He fell out of a coconut tree a couple of years ago and, and uh, had some brain damage, but apparently he's he's okay. But you wouldn't notice because, right. because of what his life was there like you before go. that. There yeah. you go. Wow. Yeah, a friend of mine uh, is uh, hung out with Keith Richards for a week in the Bahamas. He was on some exclusive island, and Keith happened to be there, and they hung out and had drinks every night and, you know, went out for dinner and stuff. Well, that's pleasant. Yeah, he said he was a really nice guy, a really uh, friendly, laid-back kind of guy. But he, you know, my friend spent enough time with him to see what it was like to be Keith Richards. You know, every room you walk into, the entire place changes because you're there, and everyone's, you know, smiling and waving and, you know. That must suck. Yeah. I mean, you can't be yeah. truly anonymous. Exactly. Exactly. It's, yeah, it's, uh, it's a funny thing. I mean, in my, in my very microscopic way, I think about that sometimes. Like, I had lunch with you and Liam here the other day, and then I went to have a coffee, and the guy in the coffee shop was like, hey, I know you. You're that guy. And it's like, well, I can't, like, pick my nose in public anymore. <laughs> this is terrible. You know? Yeah, that's... <laughs> It's not something I aspire to, that's for sure. I, I prefer anonymity and, and being almost invisible. Oh, well, we're going to post a picture of you on the website. Uh-oh. <laughs> Flipping off the world. <laughs> Picking your nose in public, hopefully. Actually, yeah. I'll, I'll put a picture of my uh, my pal, my chimpanzee friend, Bert. There you go. I taught how to flip off, how to use the middle finger. Oh, did you really? Yeah. Is this... I also taught him how to smoke pot. I was going to we say, went into that. we yeah. went into that a little. So this is the, so you taught this guy how to smoke weed and give the finger to right, people. Right, And I'm sure that that hmm. completely invalidated a whole series of scientific experiments <laughs> afterwards <laughs> that nobody realizes until this moment <laughs> why... just why, gave me the finger. Right, why this chimpanzee <laughs> just didn't give a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> to finish any of his experiments. It's because he was stoned. He was stoned, yeah. And, and he had, had a, a bad attitude. <laughs> That's really funny. Uh, he was. I was just looking at photographs of him today. I was cleaning up my office, and I found one of him flipping, you know, 
with the finger up, it's I got to make a T-shirt out of it. Oh yeah, it's great. Oh, dude, definitely, definitely. I, in fact, I've got the T-shirt guy, guy who made the shirt I'm wearing. Uh, wonderful guy, and he specializes in primate stuff. What? Yeah, primate uh, Where shirts. Where do this? Thailand. Yeah. What? Yeah. No, I'll put you in touch with him, Ben. No, really, He's because a wonderful guy. I mean, you bring that up, but um, one of the five or six companies I'm dealing with is now going to be a t-shirt company. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm starting one. Someone's coming to visit this week to help me conceptualize how to do this because I've realized that t-shirts are the only way you can say anything in America that people actually get them get the hint. So right. you can you can say some hilarious and very offensive things if you like. <laughs> And now that they have those printers that allow you to print individual T-shirts, as long as you can conceptualize it on your computer, it'll print it and mm. do it at, at a level that's quality-wise the same as what you're wearing. Really? Oh, yeah. The, you know, if they've got 3D printers, for fuck's sake, they must have they must have good T-shirt printers, and they do now. I've seen one. Yeah. I went to a trade show two weeks ago in Vegas and mm. saw this brother printer that, you know, I couldn't believe what it was what was coming out of it. So I'm immediately thinking, how many different ways can I tell people to go fuck themselves <laughs> on a T-shirt? Now I'm really excited. You're going to have the entire wardrobe. Right. Uh, are you doing any like alternative energy stuff out on the farm? Are you looking at Not yet. We, we will. I mean, the, the farm has really just now kind of gotten off the ground with us doing the chickens. Um, there's room out there for some good, um, some good solar panels if we want. Mm. Um, part of, you know, what what other choices would there be, just other than solar? Geothermal. Um, yeah, there's some interesting geothermal uh, things you drill down, and I remember seeing this thing. It's a water circulation thing, so you drill down to where it's cold, right? So it's not really geothermal in the sense that you're not you're not going into the you know volcanic kind of stuff. <laughs> you you just drill down into the bedrock where it's like a uh, not permafrost, but like it's a you know forty five to fifty degrees year round, and the pipes go down there, circulate up through the house, and the difference in temperature keeps the water circulating, so it keeps the house like cool in yeah. you know in the summer and warm in the winter. Interesting stuff. Don't know if it would work out there. I don't hear much about that. But yeah. Um, yeah. you know, solar is sort of. I mean, part of it, and really, we're managing our timber. Um, there's plenty of wood, mm. and that's actually sustainable to heat with wood. Yeah, um, it's pretty polluting, it, but it yeah. smells nice. Yeah. Well, nobody lives out there. It's yeah. just woods and me. Yeah. Um, yeah, and the trees clean the air as well. So again, it's about scale. If, if there's so many things that if well, if seven million people or fifteen million people were doing it, it would be completely fine. But well, mostly not having kids. I'm yeah. not having kids, so that's the best thing I can do for sustainability. Yeah, I, I'm the same. I never wanted to have kids, and but I like kids. But I like yeah. being able to give them back right. when you're done. <laughs> Other people's kids, yeah. they're great. Kids, yachts, ski chalets. Um, wives. These are all things I think it's better to borrow someone else's for a short amount of time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, as long as you don't get caught. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, with everyone's permission. I, I'm not talking about that. All right, so I guess we should go have chicken. That's a good idea. We, we got some dead chickens waiting for us. I hope Liam cooked them this time. The last batch, he undercooked them. So. Oh, that's not good. No. You don't want raw chicken. 
All right. Well, thank you, Richard. Uh, people pleasure. who wanted to experience uh, Dick's Kitchen, it's on uh, Belmont in Portland. Southeast Belmont. Southeast Belmont. 33rd, 3320 Southeast Belmont. And the other one is on uh, 21st Avenue uh, on the corner of Irving and 21st in Northwest Portland. And soon a num- another one in on Woodstock Avenue at the corner of 50th and Woodstock we're building number three and world headquarters with the intent to take over the world for dicks. Let's hear it for dicks. All right. All right. Thank you, Richard. You He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you. Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone body is an animal doesn't ask for much a little music and a soft touch why don't you let it out to play your heart is in a birdcage singing in your chest you want to shut it up but give it a rest you're gonna die one day why do we waste our time thinking about a Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say (laughs) When everyone we've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't want to give the end away We're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day So baby, what's a big If you want to be free, say what you want to feel, spend the night with me, I'm gonna take you up in my arms, and if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms, we'll dance into the ground.